So this, this week I, I did some traveling down south to see a friend for a few days. And this is the second time I've, I've done the post-COVID flying thing. So I know some of you are, are veterans at that all, already. Uh, but I was flying Delta, which I haven't done in a while. And a few days before that trip, I got a text message on my phone. And it was, it was a link to an article. And here's how that article began. It said, we know that the travel experience looks different now. So we're here to help you navigate the changes before you go. To help you arrive prepared, we've included a few things for you to do before your trip. That's nice. Thanks, Delta. And they gave this list of things to do. It included uh, reviewing the TSA guidelines, which was helpful because I almost brought my knife on accident. Thank you, Delta. Um, Packing your your carry-on, downloading the Delta app, reviewing your, your pre-trip email, checking your destination's travel requirements, uh, connecting with a ride share, and of course, bringing a mask. Right? I, was, I was thankful for that. It was a, it was a helpful uh, list. It was a travel guide, and that's what travel guides do, right? They can be helpful for us. They give us what we need to know to get to where we're going. They, they can help us consider things that we don't necessarily uh, consider on our own. They may not be on our minds, like, hey, don't bring a knife on an airplane. Right? And Delta summed this up, I think, in a really helpful way that's relevant to the Christian life. The title of the article was this, Know Before You Go, Preparing for Your Trip. And as we come to Genesis 46 and 47 this morning, we've got a lot of text to cover, two full chapters. We won't be able to dive deep into all of it. But what we see is Jacob and his family preparing for a trip. Not a flight to Atlanta, right? But a journey to Egypt. And just to remind you kind of where we are in this Genesis narrative, Jacob has been a primary character in the story of Genesis, right? The grandson of Abraham, the the son of Isaac, one of the patriarchs, but over the last several chapters, the focus has shifted, right? We've been looking at Joseph primarily and his brothers and their pursuit of reconciliation. And so the spotlight has been taken off Jacob. We've seen him a little bit here and there to focus on Joseph and his brothers. But now, this is where we ended last week in chapter 45, Joseph has revealed his identity to his brothers. They've been reconciled. He's extended forgiveness then Jacob finds out that his beloved son is still alive. And so he is preparing to leave his home, Canaan, the promised land, to travel to Egypt. And if you've been with us in Genesis for the whole time, which I know is a long time, I think we're in the 40s as far as our sermon count, we're almost done. But you know that this family is accustomed to traveling. They're a nomadic people. They're a traveling family. God called Abraham, his son Isaac, and Jacob traveling out of the land that Abraham was from. They called, he called them to follow him as he makes them into this great nation through which all nations will be blessed because the Messiah, the Savior of the world, will come from them. And here, God calls Jacob out of Canaan. This promised land that God promised to this people to journey to Egypt, 
So Jacob is a traveler. He hasn't traveled in a while, but he is a traveler at heart. And this theme of traveling through a place, not to a place, but through a place that is not your home, is one the Bible picks up on again and again and again. It's the theme of the Christian life. So as we look at Jacob the traveler this morning and his family, as we see this journey, we're also meant to see this sort of wide-angle view of the Christian life as a journey that will one day bring us back to the promised land of life with Christ. After Easter, we're going to do a study through the book of 1 Peter. You know what? You know what Peter calls us? This is the theme of his book. He calls us sojourners, strangers, exiles. What did Jesus pray for his disciples and by way of extension us in John chapter 17? When he prays for us, he says that we are not of this world. For the Christian, heaven is our home and our final destination. So we are, in a sense, passing through. And Jacob is beginning this journey from Canaan to Egypt, and he is passing through. And so these two chapters give Jacob and his family some key principles they need to know before they go on their journey to Egypt. That's what we see as we look at this narrative. But these are also timeless truths, not just for Jacob and his family, not just for the people of Israel, but for us too, that we as travelers, sojourners, strangers here, must embrace as we travel, sojourn through this life with heaven as our destination. So you can think of this as a traveler's guide to faithful living, right? That's what we're talking about this morning. And, and we're going to see this in, in four scenes, four principles that we're going to walk through. And because we're looking at so much text, I, I put these on the screen for us. So first, here, here are the four things that we learn. Number one, rest assured of God's presence. So we see this in the words that God speaks directly to Jacob in a vision before he he heads to Egypt in 46, 1 through 4. Number two, recount God's faithfulness. We'll see this in the genealogy, the list of, of Jacob's growing family that he brings with him to Egypt. Number three, rely on God's wisdom. We'll see this in the way that uh, Joseph wisely prepares and settles his family in Goshen in chapter 46 into chapter 47. And then fourth and finally, receive God's rescue. And we see this once again in chapter 47 as Joseph rescues people from the famine. Okay, so that's where we're headed. And let's go ahead and, and jump in. Number one, rest assured of God's presence. Verse 1 says, so Israel took his journey, that's Jacob, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. So remember where chapter 45 ended, Jacob's preparing to go back to Egypt to meet Joseph again after all of these years. He said at the end of chapter 45, we read that his spirit is revived by this news and he takes this journey, but notice what he does first. He stops in Beersheba. Now why is this significant? Well, this is the place where his father Isaac had lived. This is a place where his grandfather Abraham had lived. And notice what he does here. He worships the Lord. He makes sacrifices to God. We don't get a, a deep explanation of what's going on here, but the idea is simply this. It's as if he's saying, God, my son is alive. You have restored 
what I thought was lost after all these years. You've seen me through immense hardship. You are worthy of glory and honor and praise. So he begins his journey by worshiping the Lord. We see right off the bat that Jacob is a God-centered individual. He sees all of his life, the purpose of all of his life, as the worship and exaltation of God, which is a sign of his spiritual maturity because we've seen Jacob do some heinous things, right? We've seen Jacob put himself on the throne, but now he begins this journey by saying, God, you are worthy of worship. And it's in this setting of worship in Beersheba that the Lord speaks to Jacob in a vision. Verse 2, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Okay, so we learn something a little bit more about Jacob as he goes on this journey. Apparently, Jacob is fearful of taking this trip to Egypt. Now, why would Jacob be afraid to go down to Egypt? Well, this is where it's helpful to remember what we've seen already in Genesis, way back in, in chapter 12. I think what, what Jacob is doing is he's remembering his family history. Do you remember what happened to Abraham in chapter 12, what he did? There was a famine in the land. God called Abraham to stay in the land, but what Abraham did was he stopped trusting the Lord and he went to Egypt. He left the land where God had called him. So Jacob is thinking, I've made enough mistakes in my life. I've disobeyed before. I don't want to do what my grandfather did. He was in the exact same situation. Famine, Egypt. Here's his fear. Am Am I leaving the Lord by going to Egypt? He's fearful. So what does God do? God meets Jacob in this fear and he reassures him of his presence for this journey, right? Jacob also would have been fearful because he was in the land that God had promised to them. So he's likely thinking, why would I leave this place? I'm an old man, this family is growing, it seems like this is what's supposed to happen, but how can I venture out into this place And I don't know what's ahead for me and my family. And God comes alongside and reassures him of his presence. Verse 3, do not be afraid. Why? For there I will make you into a great nation. Verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You hear that? You hear how God comforts this saint in the midst of his fears? I am your God. I will fulfill my promises to you. And this is the most important part. I will go with you. He's saying, rest assured, my presence will not depart from you as you go down to Egypt. Just as a side note, remember the audience who is reading this for the first time. They have just been delivered out of the Exodus 430 years later. And they're being reminded, oh yeah, even in the hardest times of that journey, Even when we were enslaved and oppressed, God's presence was with us. It will never depart along our journey. One of the most foundational truths of our sojourning as Christians, living in this world that is not our home, is that we don't do it alone, right? 
We're not left to our own devices. God doesn't say, okay, I've saved you, now you're on your own. I hope you can figure this out. No, he says, I will go with you. And this is not just in a few places in scripture. It's the continue, I'd submit to you, it is one of the primary themes of the Bible is God's presence with his people. Let's consider it for a moment as we look at the whole of scripture. In the next book of the Bible, Moses in Exodus 3, he's fearful about deliverance of, the deliverance of God's people. Chapter 3, verse 12 of Exodus, what does God say? But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I will, I will be with you. Or Moses encouraging Israel to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, your enemies. For it is the Lord your God who goes before you and he will never leave or forsake you. What does God tell Joshua? The successor of Moses, Joshua 1.5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. What about when Israel, God's people, are in punishment of their sin and exile? We might think if there's, any, if there's ever a time for God to leave his people, it's when they've blatantly rejected him. But what does Isaiah 43, 2 say? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. Then we fast forward to the New Testament. Matthew, the gospel writer, has bookended his gospel with this theme. Matthew chapter 1 Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what, church? God with us. God will be with you. After the death and resurrection of Christ, after the mission is completed, Matthew's gospel closes with the reassurance from Jesus, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And what will Jesus tell us when our, our travelings here are over? And he ushers in, in his kingdom. The Apostle John tells us in Revelation 21.3. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. I hope you hear it. And I hope it brings you encouragement. Because surely you and I are fearful along the journey at times, right? Do you look at the news cycle and get fearful? You hear of wars and economic crisis, pandemics, and you feel helpless. You look at broken relationships in your own life, and you think, man, this, this journey through this life feels so alone at times. But the constant refrain for Jacob, for Moses, for Joshua, for Israel, and for the church is I am with you. Maybe you look back on your life and you're tempted, like I imagine Jacob was, to dwell so much on your failures that you're, you're paralyzed to move forward on the journey and to live on the mission God has called you to. 
Right? That's understandable. Life in a fallen world is brutal. But God is greater. You and I need this constant refrain from Jesus. Do not fear. I will go with you. And notice, God is not just saying, I will be with you like your co-pilot, right? No, it's a leading presence through this life. He is with us and he leads us. So we must first be reassured that our God, his guiding presence is with us as we walk through this journey of life. He will never leave us. He will lead us and he will one day bring us home. That's number one, rest assured of God's presence. Number two, recount God's faithfulness. So Jacob then, after this vision, he goes on this journey to Egypt and then we read this list in verses 5 through 27, and it's a genealogy of Jacob's family. It's everyone who came with him to, down to Egypt. And we can't really dig into all the details here, but I know the temptation when you get to genealogies in the Bible, right? You're like, great, a bunch of names I can't pronounce. Next chapter, you check that off the reading list, right? But there is, there is always something in a genealogy, because there's always purpose and meaning to every part of, of Scripture. So, so what is it then? What is God telling us with this genealogy? Well, the message is simple. God is faithfully fulfilling his promise to make the people of Abraham into a great nation. Right? That's what this list is telling us. Remember, God promised, and go back before Abraham, by the way, Genesis chapter 3, after sin enters the world... God tells us, Genesis 3.15, that there will be one who will come from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The Messiah is coming. And then we see, who is it coming through? Well, we see that it's coming through Abraham. And his family grows through Isaac, through Jacob. And now we see this list of this small but growing family through which God is fulfilling his promises. This genealogy is a testimony to God's faithfulness. And this is so important for Jacob, right? He is 130 years old at this point. He's weary. As he later says in chapter 47, verse 9, he's witnessed and participated in a lot of evil in his lifetime. He says, my days are evil. And if you've noticed, all throughout the story of Joseph, every time Jacob comes up, every time he speaks, he eventually references his own death. Meaning we see a man who is prone to cynicism and discouragement because life has beaten him down. And that's a, that's a temptation for us, right? As we travel through this life to become hardened and cynical and lose hope. So we need, like Jacob needed, we need reminders that God has been, he is being, and will be faithful to fulfill his promises to us. And that's what this genealogy does. Each name on this list is a testimony to God's gracious and overwhelming blessing in Jacob's life, right? Now 70, that's the total, Verse 27, I'll just read that last verse uh, there. That last part says, All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. That might seem like a, a small number uh, in the scheme of a, a nation, but remember, this slowly growing nation was once nothing. It was once a promise in Genesis 3. Then it was one man, and now we are seeing it expand. And, and the, the narrator, Moses, he wrote this with that in mind. 
As I said before, by the time his original audience would read this, Israel was a massive nation that had been delivered from Egypt. So this was a way for them to go back and recount God's faithfulness as well. And do you notice what else this gives us? This gives us a very practical way to put this into practice, right? It's one thing to say recount God's faithfulness, but what's a simple way to do it? Make a list. That's what verses 5 through 27 are. If you don't already make this a part of your your daily uh, or, or weekly, whatever spiritual habits you have as a Christian, let me encourage you to do so, whether it's on paper or simply in your mind as you pray. As most of you know, um, Uh, My family and Pastor Clint's family as well moved here as uh, church planning missionaries, you could call it. And and what that means is part of that involves raising financial support. And part of of raising financial support, it's great. It means we have churches and individuals all across the nation who are supporting the gospel ministry here in, in Waltham. But it means you have to keep those partners updated. And let me just let you in on church planning life. Church planters are generally terrible at writing ministry updates. Okay, and, But we do it from time to time. It started off once a month, about five years ago, and now it's about two, three, four times a year maybe, right? That's how it works. Um, and I'll be honest with you, every time it, it, that to-do list thing comes up, time to write your newsletter, I'm like, oh gosh. Just one more thing to do, right? Life's busy. But every single time I do it, I find myself humbled and encouraged and reminded of God's faithfulness. Because do you, do you know what writing a ministry update is? It's simply recounting God's faithfulness, right? It's looking back and saying, here's what God is doing in my family. Here's what God is doing in our church. Here's what God is, is doing uh, in our city. Here are the people that I've been able to share the gospel with. Here is all of the ways that God is fulfilling his promise of the Great Commission, and I get to be a part of it. It's recounting God's faithfulness. Now, most of you will not write ministry newsletters, but you must. We must regularly recount God's faithfulness to us. King David made this his habit. He writes in Psalm 9, verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Do you hear that resolve? I will do it. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. Isaiah 63, 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Let me give you a real practical challenge this week. Do three simple things to help cultivate this habit of recounting God's faithfulness. First, sit down. And list all of the ways God has been faithful to you. You can do the last year. You can do the last five years. Whatever it is. You can do your whole life. List all of the ways God has been faithful to you. Spiritual blessings. Physical blessings. Family. Friends. Financial. Whatever it is. List all of the ways God has been faithful to you. That's step number one. Step number two. Prayerfully read over that list. And acknowledge to God that you and I are completely unworthy of any of it, right? Tell him that you know that every good and perfect gift, James 1, comes down from the Father above. You didn't earn it. It was God's grace, God's faithfulness to you. Then third, spend time praising him and thanking him for such 
unimaginable faithfulness, grace, and mercy in your life. And maybe, just maybe, you're like Jacob, and maybe you're prone to cynicism and discouragement. And my prayer is that the Lord would use that moment to pull you out of that so you can see how faithful he has been to you. And that's something we continually need to do as we walk through the Christian life. So that's number two. Number one, rest assured of God's presence. Number two, recount God's faithfulness. And then number three, rely on God's wisdom. So as we read on, Jacob and his family gets to Egypt. They approach Egypt. And as we read on, we see this emotional scene of Joseph and Jacob finally being reunited. Verse 28 says, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Now you can imagine what this was, was like for both Jacob and Joseph. Both thought for years that this would never happen. That they would never see one another again. Yet here they are. And by the way, this is a, a further picture of what we saw last week. And if you didn't listen to Pastor Clint's message on chapter 45 and, and uh, forgiveness last week, let me encourage you to do so. This is another glimpse of the restorative power of forgiveness and reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Their sin didn't just affect their relationship with, with them and Joseph, it affected their father as well. But now through reconciliation and Joseph and his brothers' uh, forgiveness, we see that now Jacob and his son are reunited. Then after this scene, we see a large amount of text devoted to Joseph wisely working to bring his family to Egypt. Notice they don't just roll into Egypt. Hey, here we are and move into the mansion next to Pharaoh. That's not what they do. There's wise and strategic planning here. And I think it's one of those things that if we, we don't think about why Joseph is doing these things, we can miss a really important uh, application for our lives. So first, he wisely prepares his family. Listen, look, listen to verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I'll go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they've brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Lord, or abomination to the Egyptians. The Lord loves shepherds. Um, anyway, so what is Joseph saying here? He tells them what he's going to say to Pharaoh. He's like, listen, I'm going to tell Pharaoh my family are shepherds. That's true, by the way. It's not a lie. He's saying, here's what I'm going to emphasize to Pharaoh. Then he tells his family, by the way, here's what you should say to Pharaoh. We're shepherds. Right? And then he tells them why they should say it. Why is the shepherd thing so important as they consider where they're going to live in Egypt? Because Egyptians despise shepherds. Okay? And we really don't know why they, they do. Um, history doesn't tell us. It might be sort of like a, you know, shepherds are those podunk redneck people and we're proper city folk. That might be it. It might be some sort of religious thing. But, but the Egyptians despise shepherds. So Joseph is saying, 
you'll be given a good piece of land in Goshen far apart from where the Egyptians really live. Joseph's being strategic here. And there's a reason. This is more than just you get more space. He's not just a good, good real estate agent here. Here's what he's doing. He's ensuring that while the, God's people are in Egypt, they still have their own separate land. I believe jo- Joseph is safeguarding God's people so that they won't fully embrace the pagan practices of Egypt and be led astray from the Lord, right? In other words, Joseph is reassuring that they are in Egypt but not of Egypt. That make sense? So that's why all these details are here. Jacob's family could have lived truly among the Egyptians. There, there would certainly have been worldly, financial, cultural benefits to this, right? But Joseph aims for the family to live in such a way that honors the Lord. You see that? He is using his knowledge for godliness. That's what wisdom is. It is practical knowledge for godly living. And likewise, as Christians, we live in this world, but we are not to be of this world. We are present among the world, and we're not afraid of it, right? We're not afraid that we live in a sinful, broken world where there's influence contrary to God and his views, but we're not to be influenced by it either. To to live wisely as God's children means that we are guided by the practices that most honor God, not what most benefits ourselves. We see this commitment to God's way as we read on in verse 7. There's this strange um, scenario where Jacob, the leader of God's people, comes into the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, a nation that despises God. Now imagine this scene. Jacob is frail, so frail that he has to be carried around. Chapter 46, verse 5 tells us. He has to be stood up by his family. He's a 130-year-old nomadic shepherd, and he's standing before the most powerful ruler of the known world. And if we didn't know the characters in this story, we may be tempted to think that this pharaoh is about to provide blessing and wisdom and provision for Jacob, this frail man. But what happens? The complete opposite happens, right? Because the wisdom of this world is not the same as the wisdom of this kingdom. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. This is, one, this is a partial fulfillment of God's promise to bless the nations. You remember that to Abraham? We're seeing it come to fruition But this also shows that Jacob and his family have learned to rely on God's wisdom instead of the world's wisdom. They're not looking for the good life in Egypt. They're not looking for anything for Pharaoh. In their mind, Pharaoh has nothing to offer to them. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the truly good life. So he's not looking for blessing from this world because he has already been richly blessed in God. Instead, he is therefore able to bless others. You see that? That's godly wisdom. So the question we should be asking is not, how can I live the good life here? 
You have maybe 80, 90, 100 years if here, and then it's gone. James says life is a vapor. It's a mist that disappears. So we're not to be asking, how can I live the good life here? But instead, how can I live, think, act, spend my money, my time, my career, relate to my neighbors? How can I do that in such a way that glorifies God and blesses others because I already have the good life in Jesus Christ? Friends, that is wisdom. That is walking through life, relying on God's wisdom. So when we seek God's ways and we rely on his wisdom through the word, through prayer, through godly counsel within the church, we too are blessed so that we may be a blessing, a witness to others for God's sake. That's number three, rely on God's wisdom. And then fourth and finally, receive God's rescue. Receive God's rescue. So we have another scene change here. The spotlight is taken off of, of Jacob. Joseph settles the family in the land. He continues to provide for them. And then in chapter 47, verses 13 through 28, we read that the famine is still raging in the land. It's still severe. And therefore, Joseph is still doing his job of providing food for everyone. Look at verse 13 of chapter 47. It says, now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. Okay? So here's what happens. Let me try and sum it up for you. There's hungry people in the midst of the famine. They've been buying food, been using their money to buy food from the Egyptian government, from Joseph. But the famine's so severe that they run out of money. So instead of money, they start paying with their land. They're giving Egypt their land to buy more food. But the famine is so severe that they run out of land. So now the land, the money, everything belongs to the Egyptian government through Joseph's leadership belongs to Pharaoh. Now this is tough because we may read this and think, man, Joseph is kind of like, he's being harsh here. He's acting like a, a slumlord. This is actually not the case though. This was common practice in ancient times. If someone had something with which they could pay, they would pay for it. And as we'll see in a second, it's not all taking from Joseph. Joseph has their best interests in mind. He is providing for them. But here's what I want us to see in in these details. If you've been with us through the story of Joseph, you have learned how to pick up on the, the Christ connections in Joseph's story, right? This is something we've said again and again and again. You've heard the idiom, it's like the broken record, right? A vinyl record break. I, I collect vinyl, but a vinyl record ble- breaks. If you don't know what a vinyl is, uh, Google it later. And the needle then skips and it just so, sort of repeats the same thing over and over and over again. Well, this is one of those repeated broken record things in the story of Joseph. He's pointing us to Christ. He's a type of Christ. That means... Joseph parallels the life and actions of Jesus Christ for us in a way that foreshadows the gospel. 
And we see it in this passage. The people have exhausted all their options for food. They've tried all of their own resources and they've been depleted. They have no money, they have no land. Joseph is their sole provider. Then we read in verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, here's what I'll do. Behold, I have this day brought you and your land, bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is a seed for you, and you, you shall sow the land. So he gives a portion of the land back to them. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves, and your households, and as food for your little ones. You see what Joseph does? He gives them an opportunity to, to sow food for themselves, takes a, a tithe, a portion for Pharaoh. And here's their response, verse 25. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Right? Do you hear that? Joseph has provided for and rescued these hungry and helpless people and they are overjoyed that their lives are saved so much so that they are willing to become his servants friends this is how we who have been redeemed and rescued by Jesus should respond may it please the Lord we will be your servants how else would they journey through the famine if it weren't for Joseph? Likewise, how else can we journey through this life without the rescue of our Savior, Jesus Christ? There's this wonderful scene in the movie adaptation of uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, it's a book first, but it's like 3,000 pages, so I'm never going to read it. But the movie's great. And in this scene, Edmond Dantes, who becomes the, the Count of, of Monte Cristo, meets Jacopo. Edmond has escaped from uh, this island prison and has been captured by pirates. And Jacopo is one of the pirates, and he's been caught stealing from the crew. So the captain of the ship decides to force Jacopo to fight Edmond Dantes. And so they found him on the shore, Dantes, and they're saying, okay, we'll have some entertainment and we'll get some justice as well and you're going to fight to the death. And Dantes gains the upper hand in the knife fight. But instead of killing Jacopo, he strikes a deal with the captain. He says, why don't we let him live? He can still work for your crew. Then I will join your crew and serve you as well. And the captain agrees. It benefits him. And Jacopo is so overwhelmed by the mercy of this, this stranger he's never met before that he was just a few seconds earlier trying to kill. He's so overwhelmed that he pulls Dante's close and he makes a vow of allegiance. He says, I am yours forever. Right? See, that's how these people respond to Joseph. Right? We are yours. 
We will joyfully be your servants forever. Why? Because you have rescued us from certain death. And friends, that should be our response to Christ. We are forever yours in gratitude, committed to you as we sojourn through this life. And friends, this is the last point because that's the way it is in the narrative. But this is the most foundational one. We have nothing without God's rescue in Christ. The only way we can be reassured of God's presence or recount his faithfulness or rely on his wisdom is if we first receive the rescue of the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith. And this means forgiveness of sins now and forever. It, it promises a future resurrection with Christ. In other words, you and I, when we've been rescued by Jesus, we have a guarantee that we'll make it home. So here's the question for you and I. Have you received the rescue of Jesus Christ? When Christ went to the cross and died in our place and rose from the dead, he secured the rescue for those who would believe in him, past, present, and future. Have you received that rescue? We've been rescued from the past penalty of sin because Jesus took the penalty upon himself for us. We are being rescued along this journey from the power of sin because he's filled us with his spirit that we may grow in Christ along the journey. And one day, friends, we will be finally rescued from the presence of sin once for all when the resurrected Lord returns for his people. Now, you may have missed it, but we already saw a glimpse of this in chapter 46 at the beginning. In verse 4, what does God tell Jacob? He says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. That's strange, isn't it? Because Jacob dies in Egypt. So does this mean that Jacob will be buried in the promised land? Sure, it, that, it partly means that. Does it mean that God will bring up his people Israel in the Exodus 430 years later? Yes, but there's more to it than that. This is a glimpse at the future resurrection of God's people through Christ. T. Desmond Alexander says, while the patriarchs died before witnessing the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes for the whole world, they believed that their eternal destiny was secure because of their relationship with God. You hear that? After Jesus declared himself to be bread of life in John 6, just like Joseph was the the provider of bread for the people. Do you know what else Jesus says? John 6, 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, do you know what this means? As you are weary along the journey, the future resurrection for those who believe in Christ is guaranteed. He who begin a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You can be sure of God's past rescue in Christ, his present rescuing, and his future rescue. So brothers and sisters, as we, as we close, consider as we journey through this life, may we do so with a reassurance of God's presence. Right? Relying not on worldly wisdom, but God's wisdom. Receiving his rescue in Christ and knowing that one day we'll hear him say, at the end of the journey, welcome home.